So welcome back to the study of the story as we continue our journey. As we have sped up the process a little bit, this 31-week journey, um, we are going to cover the entire New Testament in two weeks. So today and uh, tomorrow, and we're going to finish the entire series uh, next week, not tomorrow, next Sunday, sorry. So last week we finished out Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and today we're going to pick up a little bit in that, in that area. And then as you saw in the review video, we got to also uh, bridge the gap of the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament and jump into the birth of Jesus. So uh, the Bible, like you know, we say it every week, is like a mural that tells a single story. Today we want to look at who Jesus is. Next week we're going to look at what Jesus does. And of course in both weeks we're going to connect the dots as to how this is related to the Old Testament and God's story and how your story intersects and interacts with God's story. So this morning the idea is the greater glory. The greater glory. Because as we saw last week, and we will review your um, the, the lesson so that you can uh, remember, but the temple that was rebuilt during the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther uh, was a temple that was not as magnificent as the, the temple that Solomon had built. And so the, the people were a little bit depressed about that, and you saw that also in the review video that you saw. And so we want to see God promises to do something even greater with these people that have been returned in this restoration process. And so in the storyline that we're looking at today, from return and restoration to the Redeemer and Restorer. And what we're talking about here is that the return and the restoration is the aspect related to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And it is about how God brings them back under Cyrus, which had been prophesied 100 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. But God sends them back home to the promised land, the land he had promised in the book of Genesis to give to his own people. And so in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they rebuild uh, the temple. They rebuild the morality of the people. They rebuild the walls. And then the temple is promised that there's going to be something even greater to happen with it. And so the second part is what we're looking at today, to the Redeemer and the Restorer. Somehow we get from this, this temple that's been rebuilt, that's not as nice as Solomon's, to Jesus. And somewhere in between there, God is doing some great work, um, and he's still doing that great work today. So this morning what I want to do is I want to start in Haggai, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Haggai is a prophet in the Old Testament who prophesied during this time period. And in this time period, as he prophesies, the temple's being rebuilt. And let's look at what he says um, in this passage. It'll be on the screen, so you can read, read it with me on the screen. In Haggai chapter 2, verses um, 6 through 9. Says, For the Lord of hosts says this, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, so the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver and gold belong to me, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide peace in this place, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. This passage in Haggai, obviously, is not the very beginning. If you go back and read chapter 1, you'll see the context a little more clearly. But during the time period of, of Darius the king, 
The people are, are back and they're rebuilding and they're restoring, etc. And God has a promise here. Now, there's a few things I want us to look at. Because what God is offering them is hope in the midst of their bleakness. Okay, back home, such a small, dismal thing they had. But God promised to do something more magnificent with it than what had occurred during Solomon's reign with his glorious temple that he had built. A few things that I want you to look at in this passage, and if it's still on the screen, well, the, the last part is, maybe go back to verse 6 on it. <clears throat> this was a, a time period um, where they had just finished celebrating the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1, which is not on the screen, it says on the 21st day of the seventh month. The seventh month is the month that they celebrate trumpets on the first day, uh, atonement on the tenth day, and tabernacles on the fifteenth day, which lasts for seven days. So on the last day of this Feast of Tabernacles, okay, there's a message, a revelation from God. The word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, the son of Jeho Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people, the people that had returned, who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? What house? The temple. Uh, of you guys that came back, who remembers what this used to be? The gloriousness of Solomon's before Babylon ruined it, destroyed it, and burned it down because of your sin. He says, does it seem like nothing to you? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel, the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you should automatically have bells ringing in your head because God has repeatedly said some phrases that he said long ago. Remember when Joshua gets ready to take over after Moses, what does God tell him? He says, be strong, for I am with you. God repeated this. He told Jacob, same thing, I am with you. Abraham, I am with you. This is a repeated theme throughout the scriptures. The idea of God's people being in God's place and God's presence. And today we really want to hone in on the idea of God's presence. And so the people are there and, and God is speaking, he's revealing himself to them about this promise that he made when you came out of Egypt. Now, when he talks about this shaking, what, what I want you to think about is imagine that you were really, really strong, and you were into a, an apple orchard or an orange orchard, and you went over to the tree, and you grabbed the tree, and you started shaking it as hard as you could. And what's going to happen? Stuff's going to what? It's going to fall. The fruit's going to fall off, right? So that's what I want you to think about. When, when God talks about shaking, okay, that God is going to shake the nations. That's what he's going to do. And so he's fleecing them. What he's talking about here is he's going to shake the nations, and what's going to come out of the nations is, is their money. Now, what? what are you talking about? Well, think back to the Exodus. In, in the book of Exodus, the event, the Exodus, when the people left Egypt, did they leave empty-handed? No, God fleeced them. God shook Egypt. And when he shook Egypt, what came out of Egypt? They came with all sorts of money, which later on they had then that they could use to build the what? No. Well, yes, but before it was called a temple, it was called a tabernacle because it was movable. So at the end of the book of Exodus, we find the people bringing all sorts of stuff to build the tabernacle. Now, I don't know what percent came from where, but I know that they were on the low end of the totem pole when they were slaves in Egypt. And when they left, the people were giving them all sorts of stuff. So God shook Egypt. Here he says he's going to shake the nations, okay? And 
he is going to do a couple of different things with it. And then his house is going to be filled with his glory, he says. Look at verse 8. It says, the silver and gold belong to me. The silver and gold belong to God. So here's an aspect of this, okay? You might be using your money for whatever you want to use your money for, but what God says is this. At the end of the day, he's going to get all the money, and the money will be used for what it's supposed to be used for. When the Egyptian money is brought in and used for the tabernacle, look at the, look at the switch that's happening here. The Egyptians were using their money for idol worship. The Egyptians were using their money to pay uh, to have slave labor done. The Egyptians were using their money to build pyramids to the pharaohs who were like gods to them. God fleeces them and takes their money and uses it to build the tabernacle, which is where he's going to come and meet with his people. You see, his money had been corrupted. Who owns the money? God does. You don't own your money. You don't own your clothes. You don't own that board. God owns it. So God was fleecing them. He's shaking them. And that is coming back. God eventually will get the glory in everything. Even he, the upside-down stuff, he will flip it topsy-turvy. Yes. Saul God, the high priest, met in the Holy of Holies. Did they see God like face-to-face? Nope. We'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, nobody did. No, only Moses was the closest one who ever saw God, or as close as you can get. He saw the backside of God. Okay, until just hold that thought. Until, okay, and so God is going to shake them, and He is going to use this whole process, okay, to bring glory to Himself. So it's not just about the money. There's also something else. He says the final glory of the house will be greater than the first. He's also going to provide peace. Now, we don't have time to look at all the different aspects, but in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, there's talk about the, the new covenant in Ezekiel 34, 30, Ezekiel 37, 27. And so this idea that God, through the prophets, has spoken about a new covenant where his spirit and his presence is going to dwell with the people, and he was going to do a new thing. He's going to write the, the law in their hearts instead of having to look at a list of the Ten Commandments. That's what's going on. So God has promised to do something more magnificent. So how could this possibly be? Well, in time... This very building that they were constructing would be visited not just by the Shekinah glory of God. What, what's that? That's when, the, when, when the, the cloud, the glory of God, comes down on the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, That's one time a year in the temple that this would happen. And, and the, uh, the high priest would go in there and he would meet and he would put the blood on the seat. And the Shekinah glory of God would show up. But this is going to be God himself showing up. Something much greater than just the cloud. I want you to imagine if you lived in a little shack in the woods and the president in his motorcade comes up the highway and up some dirt road and maybe they got to clear trees out of the way to even get to you. And he comes in to meet with you. Well, that would make your little house, your little hut in the woods more glorious to some degree than the mansion across the river. Why? Because the mansion across the river didn't get visited by who? The president. You So you see... If a high-profile figure visits a place, it becomes more what? More glorious, more important. Despite the fact that physically speaking, there might be a more expensive building somewhere else. Are you with me so far? Okay, so if God visits the shack, is the shack more glorious or less glorious than the mansion? Huh? It's more glorious than the mansion because God visited it. So the little stable where Jesus was born, okay, in a barn of sorts, a cave of sorts, and he was born in a feeding trough. Was the feeding trough in the little barn more glorious than the inn that had no room for him? 
Yes. It was more glorious for him. Yes. Yes, feeding trough for me. And so it is with this little reconstructed humble temple. Though it will function in somewhat obscurity for years, it will eventually bring the nations in the very presence of God to himself. So the, the promise that God makes here to Haggai is astounding, that the glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former one. And that is what we're looking at when we talk about how Jesus comes. It's not just a Christmas celebration. Once a year we celebrate how a little baby was born in the manger in a feeding trough surrounded by animals because there's no room in an inn. Okay? First off, half our carols get the story wrong anyway. Second off, we're really about something way bigger than that. Christmas is something to be celebrated every day, not once a year. So in between Haggai and Jesus being born is 400 years. It's often called the 400 silent years. They're wondering who, when, and how is the promise of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. The, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they're wondering how is God going to do this? They're sitting there, like you saw in the video clip, looking towards the sky, waiting. Like, when is this going to happen? And years go by, and decades go by, and then hundreds of years go by. And it's the same problem Christians have today. Jesus says he's coming back. We're like, when? 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 It's been 2,000 years. When? Well, Peter already addressed this. He said the mockers will say, when? It, it's already been a long time. He's not coming back. And so Peter's response is, because you don't understand God. Time is nothing to God. And so you've got to get off your time horse. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, okay? This is the passage of Scripture that all of you, if you've ever read this, this is your, probably, probably your favorite passage. I'm joking. Probably not at all. But I want you to follow with me anyways as we read what you think is probably a boring passage of Scripture. Here we go. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, go back. So right there, before we even get any further, the first line that Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, says is it's a genealogy or historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So if you know anything about the Old Testament, you already know that we're talking about a person who comes from Abraham and David. And why does that matter? They were good people? That's not a good enough reason. Love God is not a good enough reason. Well, you know that because you know something about the New Testament. Okay? What you got to know is that what did God promise to Abraham? His descendants will outnumber the land. That's good right there. Okay? And that through Abraham, God would bless everyone, all the nations. Okay? And what did God promise to David? He promised to David that there would be someone from his line who would be a king forever. So we're talking about someone who is related to Abraham, someone who is related to David, and specifically it's Jesus Christ that Matthew's talking about. Okay, now track with me. I'll go pretty fast through the rest of the genealogy. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez, Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered King David, then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Je Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
Then after the exiles of Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Matan, Matan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, from the exile to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, I could spend the next hour talking through this genealogy with you. We don't have the time this morning. There's five women of ill repute that are mentioned. Very odd to put in a genealogy. They're specifically put in there. Actually, you could do five separate messages on those five women and why they're in the genealogy. But this last verse is a key for us in understanding what's going on. Okay, what number is mentioned three times? The number 14 is mentioned three times in there. Actually, the number 14 is mentioned five times in there, but you'd have to know a secret. You see, the Hebrews had numbers for every letter. And David's numbers add up to 14. So what you have actually is 14 is mentioned five times, or we can flip that on its head because 14 is the number of who? David. David. And so actually David's name is mentioned five times. And so why does that matter? Because what have they been waiting for for 400 years? A new king from the line of David. And so here's Matthew on the scene, and Matthew is saying, I'll tell you who the new king is, the new king, the new David. They've been waiting for the new David. They've been waiting for the new Moses. They've been waiting for the new prophet. And who is it going to be? It's Jesus. Jesus, the man. Let's talk about Jesus, the man, for a minute. So what do we know about Jesus, the man? According to the genealogy of Matthew that we just read, he's the son of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the faith. Okay. So he's a real person, okay? He's not a made-up person. He's a real person. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God had promised Abraham that Abraham would leave his land and go to a new land that God would show him and that God would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Yes? So, uh, Jesus is not man. No, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. That's impossible is what you're going to say. Uh-huh. He's not half anything. Okay, how can you be half? Chill. How can you be half a man? How can you be half a man? How can you be half a human? Either you're a human or you're not. Did he have half a, did he have a lizard's head? Did he have a cow's leg? He was 100% human man. He had every aspect of a human man, 100%. So the irony of this situation, just bear with me, okay, we'll get into it, is Jesus is first off a man, okay, Jesus the man, he's the son of Abraham, okay, he's also the son of Adam, okay, in Matthew's genealogy, he only goes back to Abraham, but if you flip over, this will not be on the screen, you can look at the Bible, or you can just trust me as I read it, in, Matthew, or in Luke chapter number three, Luke gives the other genealogy for Jesus Christ, and in Luke chapter three, and in verse 23, we will see that if you read through the genealogy that Luke lists, he begins his with the son of Joseph, and he goes all the way down to verse 38 where he says, son of Adam, son of God. So Luke chases, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay, Again, Luke is arguing for the real historical person of Jesus, going all the way back to the real historical person of Adam who is the husband of Eve. 
Luke 3, 23 to 38. So Jesus is the man. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of Adam. Okay? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read that God had made a promise in the garden. In Genesis 3, 15, this is often called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. Okay? God's first promise to redeem his people. Many of you know it in summary form, but I'll read it for you. He says, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so in here we have the promise that God makes that the rest of the Bible, that was Genesis 3.15, the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of Genesis 3.15, that there will constantly be a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And so here we find that Jesus, is he the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of the woman? The woman, thank you. Okay, because he is a man who comes from Abraham and from Adam. So the war between the seed of the serpent and the, wo the woman, or here now the seed of the serpent and the Savior. So we also find that he is from the woman, so he's the seed of, of the woman, and he is the son of man. So that's Jesus the man. Now, we don't know a lot about Jesus' childhood, and that's because the scriptures weren't interested in showing his childhood. Yes, he had a childhood. Okay, Yes, he played. Yes, he, he grew up like every other little boy in town, okay? The difference is he never sinned. So you probably wouldn't have liked him because he was always perfect. So Jesus, the boy, is not in Scripture very much except for when he went to the temple to show that he was even at the early age of 12 already obeying and doing what? His father's business. His father's business. Don't tell me you're too young. Jesus, at 12 years old, was in the temple asking questions that the adults thought were very wise questions. So Jesus, the man. But Jesus wasn't just a man, okay? Jesus was also a king. So Jesus, the king. I mentioned earlier about David and the Davidic covenant, okay? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verse 16, which is now on the screen for you. God came to David, and he made him a promise. He said, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, you've got to think through this a minute. You can just read the verse, but you've got to think. We just got done studying hundreds of years of history. And what has happened to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? What? They separated, and then what happened? They fell. They were destroyed. So, is there a king on the throne from the line of David? No. At the time, at the end of the Old Testament. No, there's not. So they're looking for this king. God made a promise in this verse, 2 Samuel 7, 16. If there is not a king from the line of David, then who's a liar? God. Okay? The Bible's not all that hard to check and prove facts for, guys. So you've got to have a king from the line of David if there's going to be the truth and faithfulness and trust of God. Otherwise, he's a liar. So there hasn't been for a while. But what's going on? So here we find that we have to solve this problem. So Jesus comes, but we already learned from Matthew's genealogy that we all read together that isn't so boring as we thought it was, is that Jesus comes from the line of David. So that means he comes from a line where he can be king. 
you remember what they put on the cross? Jesus, the the king of the Jews. That's what they put on it. They killed the king of the Jews. And the, the Jewish people said, don't put that. Put, he said he was the king of the Jews. So did Jesus say he was the king? Yeah, even his enemies said he said he was the king. They just didn't want to believe he was the king. That's why they said, put, he said he's the king. Because we don't think he's the king. So Jesus comes as king. In line with the Davidic covenant that you still see on the screen from 2 Samuel 7.16. So his lineage to David. Why is Matthew caring about the fact that Jesus goes back to David? Because to be king, which here's why Matthew doesn't put Jesus' childhood in the Bible. He don't care about his childhood. He cares about proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the Jews. So what does Matthew focus on? He starts out right in the beginning, the first chapter, to show you that Jesus is not only a man, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And to prove that, he's got to show that he comes from the line of who? David. He's also the son of man because he's literally a man. The flood, that was in Genesis, bro. Genesis 6. So not only is Jesus the man, Jesus is also the king. He came as a king. He came riding in on that donkey. And they were praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they crucified their king. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. Just like in the Old Testament, when they rejected God. Do you ever think about this? When Samuel says that he's upset because the people want a king. And God says, Samuel, it's okay. Don't take it hard, man. They've rejected me, not you. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They already had a king, King God, but they rejected him. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, and the people reject him as the king. And they say, no, we have no king but Caesar. They choose a pagan to be their king instead of the creator and king of the universe to be their king. So he is man. He is king. And thirdly, and the main point, is that Jesus, the God. So yes, he's 100% man. He's not half man. He's not three-quarters man. He's not 25% man. Okay, He's 100% man. It's not like you say, yeah, I'm 25% American, 25% Cherokee Indian, 33% French, and whatever else. No. Jesus is 100% man, 100% human. Even if you took all those, each of those aspects is just ethnicities and nationalities, it still makes you all a what? A human. A man. All right? So Jesus is 100% man. He's not part. He's 100% man. However, he's the only person who's ever existed, the only one that ever will exist, who's also 100% God. Yes. Jesus, the God. The most important of the three, though the other are necessary in the scope of the plan of redemption, there was many other sons of Adam. Many, millions, you're a son of Adam. There's millions of sons of Adam. And there's many sons of David. Many, 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 thousands of sons of David. But there's only one. It was the son of Adam and the son of David and the son of God. Only one. For sure. I told you, he's in Luke's genealogy. I read it after we read Matthew. 
No, I told you why. Because Matthew has a point, and Luke has a different point. So they don't include the whole thing. This is, what, this is the key with understanding the scriptures that you've got to get. If you don't get anything else today, get this. Okay? So when people want to argue about scriptures or it doesn't say this or it should say this, no, 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 we don't, we don't get to say what it should say. Uh, if you write a book, okay, about my life, are you going to include every single detail? No, you're not. You're not going to include it no matter who I am. You don't have enough space. You don't have enough pages. No one's going to read it. It'll be too many pages. You're going to include what? What you pick, what you choose. Exactly. And so when Matthew is writing by God's direction and Luke is writing by God's direction and they're writing for different groups of people for slightly different reasons, but all to show how awesome Jesus is, Matthew is writing to the Jews to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke is writing slightly differently. So Luke shows all the way back to Adam. Not so in Matthew. Matthew shows back to Abraham. Well, you didn't have to convince a Jew that if he comes from Abraham, he had to come from Adam. Duh. Where did Adam come from? Where did Abraham come from? Adam. Because he has to be, I already explained, so he's got to be in order to be king. He can't be the king from David's line unless he comes from what line? He can't be the king from David's line unless he comes from what line? David's. And why does that matter? Because 2 Samuel 7, there was a promise that there would be a king from the line of David forever. You with me yet? Are you with me? Yeah. Yes. I wasn't asking you. So Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the full God. So the Davidic covenant to fulfill the promise had to be in the line of David, and therefore the line of Adam and Abraham as well. 2 Samuel 7, 6 that we want to look at now. We looked at 2 Samuel 7, 16. Now we want to look at 2 Samuel 7, 6. I don't think that's on the screen, is it? Oh, it is. From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. And so here what, what God is saying is, listen, David, you want to build me this temple. Okay? I've never had this little temple place I had to stay in. I just move where I want in the tabernacle. I didn't ask you to build me a temple. So instead, God says <coughs> to him, well, first off, David, you're not going to build it because you've had too much war. But then he says, but I will honor your request and I'll let your son Solomon build it. But I want you to catch something else. Now we skip to John 1.14. And look what we find here. And the word became flesh and he took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. That word that's in all caps, residence, okay? It means the same, it is the same word as Jesus tabernacled. When, when God tabernacled, he met with his people. Why was the tabernacle built in the end of Exodus? It was built so that God could meet with his people. Because the whole point is for God's people to be in God's place, in God's presence. To be in God's presence, who has to be there? God. For God to be there, things got to be in the right relationship and right place, which is why right after the end of Exodus when the tabernacle is built, the next book, which most people don't like, is Leviticus. Leviticus is all about worship and how you have to be right with God to be in God's presence because he just made the tabernacle. Now let's talk about how we have to interact with God. You all with me so far? Yeah. 
That's like anybody. You can't be in God's presence if you're not right. You'll be consumed. He's a consuming fire. You'll be obliterated. It's like getting too close to the sun. You won't make it. You with me? This is why you need Jesus. Jesus can make you right so that you can be in God's presence. Without that, you'll, you'll blow up. You ain't going to make it, bro. You with me? Nod, shake. Are you with me? Okay, good. All right. I want to make sure you understand. All right. So here in John 1.14, so this is the apostle John. He was the closest one to Jesus. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then God revealed to him the book of Revelation that he wrote down as well. This person knew Jesus probably better than anybody else on the face of the earth, at least in his adult ministry life. He says the word became flesh, Jesus, and he took up residence. He dwelt among us. We observed his glory. We saw him, his greatness, his weight, his awesomeness, the glory as the one and only son from the father. He's the son of God, full of grace and truth. Now, how does he get here? Look at Matthew 1.23, back in Matthew. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Where does Emmanuel come from? Emmanuel comes back from Isaiah. Isaiah had already prophesied this voice. And so Matthew is now saying that Jesus is the Messiah, God with us. And so the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Haggai, they have built this temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that Haggai, through God's revelation, is encouraging the people. He's like, listen, this little shack that you built that you think is no good because Solomon had this awesome, awesome temple. And so compared to it, this is like a shack. And you're like, oh, it's so awful. And God says, guys, it's okay. Your little shack is great. Worship me in that little shack. And I'll tell you also what I'm going to do. One day this little shack is going to be the place that the nations will stream to. I will shake those nations. They will bring the money. But not only that, it will be more glorious because, as we come to find out, God himself is going to come to this little thing that you think is a shack. And God is going to be glorified in it. And it's going to be better than Solomon because God himself did not show up at Solomon's temple in the flesh. But God himself in the flesh in Jesus Christ is going to show up at this temple. They just didn't know it yet. They just had to wait 400 some odd years. created by God. They're married. Okay? Stay on track here, okay? Number two? Okay, discuss it at lunch. Okay? Keep it on the topic. Literally means God with us. To get off on a tangent, but that's actually a debated topic. Because he says, this is translated, so if it, yeah. if, if he writes Emmanuel, like it was written in Hebrew, why would he have would be, It'd be in Greek, but. Uh, so it was written in Greek? For sure. We have the Greek. Okay. Um, it's debated as to whether or not it was originally written in Hebrew. 
there are proponents that would argue that it definitely was, and then, you know, it's debated. Or Aramaic. Aramaic is, is, is a larger portion of people that would, but most say Greek, some say Aramaic, just a few that say Hebrew. So, so you put all this together, all right, and there's many more verses that we could look at here, but Jesus the God. So the thing is that he, he comes from Adam and Abraham's line and David's line, which makes him the seed of the woman, okay? He's 100% human. But how did he get in Mary? As we read the verse earlier, okay, he was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, like you said. And this is why he is the seed of God, which makes him the son of God. He's not tainted by the sin of mankind. Every human being is a sinner. So how do you get Jesus, God? How do you get God born but not be a sinner? Well, to be born, you got to be like human born. But to not be a sinner, you got to be some kind of supernatural human creation again. Well, how did Adam get made and Eve get made? Well, God made them supernaturally. So if God can make Adam and Eve and all of creation, can he not put himself inside a woman and be born? And so that's what he did. And so, yeah. Sin didn't come out of nowhere. Sin came when man rebelled against God. When man rebelled against God and did his own thing, he sinned. Well, God didn't create sin. There you go. Sure. So, putting all this together, to summarize this, the greater glory in the birth of Jesus. I want to throw one more, one more thing in here. In Genesis chapter 1, you have three topics in the first chapter of Genesis. It's God, land, and man. Okay, that's the three things in Genesis 1. There's God. In the beginning, God. Okay, first three words in the beginning, four words. In the beginning, God. So what's chapter 1 about? God. In the beginning, God did what? Created, right? Okay, so then we focus on the land. Okay, as soon as you zoom in, chapter 1 starts out huge. God created everything. And then it immediately zooms in on the land. And why does it focus on the land? And then the next six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. Why? Because the second topic is land. The third is the man. The whole point of chapter 1 is preparing the habitation for the man to dwell on. It's uninhabitable. Why does it have to be habitable? So, you guys, going back to your question about why certain stuff in the Bible. So Genesis 1 is not trying to prove science one way or the other. Genesis 1 is trying to demonstrate what God is doing and why he's creating the land. And he's making the land so that you can live on the land. And why is he making the land so you can live on the land? For the man. For the man. So that's what he's doing. So God, land, and man. Okay. So what you have here, this is the plot line of scripture, you could argue. Okay. So if you look in Genesis one, that's what I just talked about. You got all three, God, land, and man. You go back to Genesis 12, which we've already talked about today. You'll see that God calls Abraham to leave his land and go to a new land, okay? And it's in a relationship with God, so it's in the first column and the second column, and God is doing the work with a man, so it's also in the third column. He repeats that in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. 
In Exodus chapter 6, you'll see that God takes his people out of slavery in Egypt, a certain land, to bring them to a new land, the promised land. And it's in that situation he starts, initiates, a, a, or continues a covenant relationship with them. So you have, again, God and the people in a relationship. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have what we called earlier the Davidic covenant, that God is again making a relationship with a man, and it's related to these aspects of the God, the land, and the man, and specifically the addition of the king that's going to be on the throne forever. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, we come to the question that I tell you guys all the time is the number one most important question. Forget all the rest of your debates and answer this question. And the question is this. But you, he said, Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? That's the question. Forget all your other questions. Figure out that question right there. All right? I don't care about the age of the earth. I don't care about aliens. I don't care about UFOs. I don't care about this, that, or the other. Figure out that question right there. Who is Jesus? When you figure that question out, then you can start working through the rest of them. Figure that one out first. And so Peter says, it's not on the screen, but Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says this to him. Flesh and blood, what's flesh and blood? Human, man, has not revealed that to you. So who did? God. You want to know why some people don't believe? Because they're blinded. They're blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says... That Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds so that they cannot believe the glorious gospel. What's the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. So why don't people believe Jesus is the Messiah? Why didn't the Jews believe it? Why don't they believe it today? Because they're blind. And why are they blind? Because they've been blinded spiritually. And who has to unblind them? God has to unblind them. And how does he unblind them? He sends the gospel message. That's why we must preach the gospel. So the gospel message goes out to you, and it starts taking these blinders off, and then you have a choice. Accept or reject. And so I close this morning with the question of who is Jesus and summarizing what we've been talking about. Not only is the idea of God, land, and man in the scripture, but what we've talked about today is the promised seed, the coming king, and the divine presence. The promised seed from the Abrahamic covenant. The coming king from the Davidic covenant. And the divine presence is about God being with his people. So when we look at the Christmas story, and unfortunately we only look at it once a year normally, we miss the point. Because we have nothing else to talk about because... That is all there is to talk about. It's the fact that God, if you remember the very first week, either in this series or the Believe series, we talked about how God was both imminent or intimate, and also he was transcendent. In other words, he was separate and he was other, but at the same time, he comes close. This is where he comes close. The incarnation is the big word for it. It's when God becomes a man. And so that's the last column over here. And we've talked about these. And it is talked about all through the Bible that there is this hope. And what happens in the Bible is God tells his people this thing is going to happen, but they don't understand how until it happens. So God says this little humble shack of a temple you rebuilt is going to have more glory than Solomon's. And the people are like, huh? Well, that's cool. But we don't get it. And that's how you and I are. Jesus says, hey, be faithful. I'm really coming back. And you're like, huh? I don't get it. It's already been 2,000 years. You're right. 
because we're not on his time frame. We don't get his time frame, and we don't get what he's doing half the time, and neither did the Jews, neither did the Israelites, neither did the people before that, because they only see what they can see. They can't see the other side of the mountain until God moves the mountain, and he is the mountain mover. And when he moves the mountain, suddenly they can see what's on the other side of the mountain, which often has another mountain behind it. And so the divine presence, Jesus comes to take away the sins of the world, but Jesus comes to dwell with his people. And when Jesus leaves, he says, I leave you with another, just like me, the Holy Spirit, which is why when we read in Haggai that God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. He tells Jacob, I'm with you. He tells Isaac, I'm with you. Jesus tells the disciples when he leaves, I'm with you always. Why? Because the Bible is about the presence of God. You know what heaven and hell is about, guys? Heaven and hell is very simple. Heaven and hell is about who lives in the presence of God and who does not live in the presence of God. You know who's going to be in hell, guys? The people that are going to be in hell are going to be the people that said while they were on earth, I don't want God in my life. I don't want to live in the presence of God. And that's exactly what they get. They chose. Who's going to be in heaven? The people that said, God, I want you more than anything. I want to live in the presence of God. And you will start living in the presence of God not when you die. You start living now because you get the Holy Spirit. And then when you pass from this life to the next life, that doorway that we call death, that is when you will, according to Corinthians, fully see God as he actually is. Instead of just seeing shadows of him and snippets of him, you'll see him like he really is as the full Savior. And at that point, you'll be living fully in the presence of God. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Yes, to take away our sins, but also he is the presence of God incarnate that came to dwell with man. Pray with me. Father, this morning we lift up your name on high. The name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name upon which every knee shall bow one day and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that was rejected as king some 2,000 years ago, but we today, God, we, for, for my part, I accept and proclaim Jesus as king over all the universe. You shook the nations, and you'll shake the nations again. All the nations will be shaken, Lord, and all will come to know you, that you are king. God, we pray this morning that we would live our lives in such a way cognizant, aware of the fact that if we're a believer, we live in your presence day in and day out because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Where we go, you go, because you're in us. Might that make us a little more serious about what we think and say and do? Most of us would do things differently if you were sitting right beside us. You're not only sitting next beside us, you're living inside of us. God, for those who might not know you as Savior this morning, I pray that, that they would realize and they would desire. I pray you would open their blind eyes so that they would see and desire to live in the presence of God from today forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.